There's a million things we have to do today, and worrying doesn't need to be one of them. That's why one in nine families use Life360 for safety, to connect to the people that matter most. Join today and get premium features that keep your family protected with real-time location updates, crash detection, and 24-7 roadside assistance. Because let's face it, you're more than just your to-do list, you're a family. So let's live life 360. Download for free today. Coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, this is the award-winning Parareality Radio. I'm Sandman, and I'll be your host for the next two hours. Good evening, everybody, and thanks for tuning in tonight. Well, it's the first Monday of the month, Monday, February the 3rd, 2014, and that means, of course, that it's time for another episode of Parareality Radio. I've got a special treat in store for you tonight because my very special guest is Mr. Nick Redfern. He's an author and investigator of UFOs, aliens, government cover-ups, and cryptozoological creatures of all kinds. I'm very excited to have him as a guest, and I know that this is going to be a great interview. But before I introduce Mr. Redfern to everybody out there, let me tell you how you can get in contact with the show here on Parareality Radio, because there are a few different ways to do it. Okay, first thing you can do, you can email me. My email address is sandman at parareality.com. That's sandman at parareality.com. And you can also just visit my website, which is parareality.com. There is a contact um, link down at the bottom of the About Sandman page. Uh, You can also listen to the show there on parareality.com as well, just in case you are um, listening to this solely on Spreaker, which is where I'm broadcasting from. I'm also on Skype. You can uh, message me on Skype. That's PR Radio on Skype. You can find me on my Facebook page. If you're on Facebook, like 90% of the world's population, at least the world's population that has internet, you can look me up on Facebook. It's Sandman.Parareality on Facebook. That's Sandman.Parareality there on Facebook. And finally, you can also call the studio line 615-692-1170. 
Now, the show tonight is not live. This is a pre-recorded show. So if you call the studio line, you will not get me or my guest, Mr. Nick Redfern. However, I do encourage people to call whenever they're listening to the show, whether you're listening to it live or whether you're listening to it pre-recorded or whatever. I always want you to call the studio line if you have a question or comment. That number, once again, is 615-692-1170. Just call, leave a message, and be aware that I may play your comment back on the show. And I may also be on, uh, I may also answer the phone, too, because, well, I'm always in the studio working on something with the show, and you just may actually catch me in the studio, and I may actually answer the phone. However, if I don't, and you leave a message, by leaving the message, you are giving me permission to play your sound clip back on the air. Okay? Just just a little FYI. So, the ways you can get in touch with me, once again, email sandman at parareality.com. Facebook, that's sandman.parareality on Facebook. Call the studio line, area code 615, then dial 692 Seven zero. All right, I'm going to take a quick musical break, and I will be right back, and I will start my interview. God, I'm so excited about this. Mr. Nick Redfern is on the phone. Take a listen to this, and I'll be right back in just a few minutes. I'm just saying. 
This is Parareality Radio, your information source for all things paranormal. Join your host Sandman and his roster of special guests, experts, and experiencers as they explore the realms of the known and the unknown. New shows broadcast the first Monday of every month at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Listen online at parareality.com. Turn on. Tune in and find out. Okay, I'm back. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce my very special guest this evening, Mr. Nick Redfern. Nick Redfern is a full-time author, journalist, and he specializes in a wide range of unsolved mysteries, including things like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, UFO sightings, government conspiracies, alien abductions, and all other kinds of cryptozoological and paranormal phenomena. He has uh, written for the London Daily Express newspaper, the Fortean Times, Fate Magazine, and UFO Magazine. And he's the author of over 20 books. Just a few include The NASA Conspiracies, The World's Weirdest Places, the Pyramids and the Pentagon, and one of my personal favorites, Three Men Seeking Monsters. He's also made several television appearances, most notably here recently on H2's Ancient Aliens. Just saw him on that the other night. His latest book is entitled For Nobody's Eyes Only, Missing Government Files and Hidden Archives That Document the Truth Behind the Most Enduring Conspiracy Theories. Long title. Among his many exploits, he's investigated reports of lake monsters in Scotland, vampires in Puerto Rico, werewolves in England, aliens in Mexico, sea serpents in the United States. Nick travels and lectures extensively around the world, and he's originally from England and currently, for the last several years, 
is residing in Dallas, Texas. Mr. Nick Redfern, it is a real pleasure to have you here on Parareality Radio. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Man, I, I was putting that little introduction together, and I didn't really realize until I started putting that together how much you've actually done. Man, that is a lot of stuff. Well, you know, it's kind of like when you sort of write books, um, lecturing and TV stuff and expeditions kind of become part of it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sort of one leads to the other. Um, so it's all sort of part and parcel of the same of the same thing, really. Yeah, and you, you've been doing this for a while now. And another thing that I didn't realize was how long you've actually been researching this and, and writing about it. And it goes, what, all the way back to... 98 or something like that? Um, well, I actually started first writing um, when I was 18, excuse me, 17. Um, wow. The, the actual school age leave in, in England is 16. Um, and so from 17 I worked to 19, I worked on a, a rock music magazine back in England called Zero. And um, <clears throat> that's what got me into writing. I, uh, I wasn't I wasn't the best student at school. We'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah. And um, and I, I left school. Didn't really know what I was going to do, what I wanted to do. And I, I luckily just fell on this job. There was an offer for a position to train somebody in basically every level of journalism, and um, and that sounded kind of interesting. But on top of that, you know, the I was getting paid for reviewing, well, back then, vinyl albums and going to concerts and seeing bands. But you yeah. paid for it, you know, and it's it a great job. Like a cool thing, you know, so yeah. what are you going to pay me to go and see a band on a Saturday night? You know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so they taught me all the different aspects of writing and um, journalism and interviewing techniques and photography. And I did that for a couple of years. Now, after that, uh, I just sort of went back to uh, regular work for about, 10 years, I spent about five years um, as a van driver driving all around the UK delivering uh, paint and wallpaper to companies, you know, the, the um, house painting companies. Uh, I did about five years as a forklift driver. But in, in this time, I was still doing uh, sort of freelance writing here and there as well. And so that's, uh, at that time at least, till I was sort of my late 20s, uh, it was very much more like a little hobby than anything else. Yeah. Uh, but then I thought, well, why not try and have a go at writing a book or two? I got plenty of information because I'd done a lot of investigations, even though I wasn't sort of doing it full-time or anything. And I'd still done a lot of investigations. So yeah. I thought, well, why not try and put a book together on everything that I'd done over the sort of preceding years? And that's what I did. I wrote a book in, that was in 95, 96, that was published in 97, called A Covert Agenda. And that was a study of all the British UFO stuff I'd looked into mm -hmm. uh, that dated back through to the 40s and right up to the present, uh, the present then at least. And so that's that's sort of what got me involved, and that was the, the tipping point with the first book. Then I sort of took this job. I thought, well, I'll take a chance and um, and started working full-time as a writer and um but in lots of different fields, um, you know, I know I'm sort of known more for the paranormal stuff. I do a lot of other things as well, and um, and that, that sort of began it all then. So how did you get involved in the, the paranormal stuff, most specifically the uh, the research on UFOs and, and cryptids? 
Well, when I was about five or six, my parents took me on a week's holiday to Scotland. And um, if you're going to go to Scotland, you've got to spend a day in Loch Ness. <laughs> and that's what we yeah. did. And I still have a few. I was about, as I said, about five or six at the time. I've still got a few couple of memories of my dad telling me the story of the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, as we stood on the shore, you know, Loch Ness is a huge lake, like 20-something miles long and like a mile wide. And sort of back then, when you're five or six, you kind of equate things like the Loch, Mon Loch Ness Monster with stories of monsters in the closet or under the bed, you know. Yeah. Um, but it, it sort of fascinated me, and uh, I never sort of forgot that trip. And when I got to sort of about 11 or 12, I discovered the books of people like Brad Steiger and John Keel, and um, and that got me interested in all that kind of stuff, the reading, and then expanding it further and further. And so then, and then when I got into the journalism stuff, I, I thought, you know, I always thought, well, you know, about combining the two together. Yeah. Um, so if it hadn't really been for that trip to Loch Ness, I probably would have had no more knowledge or interest than you know, the average person does, where you watch a, a show now and again, you might read yeah. a book, but nothing beyond that. Well, that's very similar to uh, the way that I got into all this. I, I, oh, cool. I, I didn't go on a trip with my parents or anything, oh. but uh, I had, uh, when I was probably 10 or 11, and oh. the people that listen to this show, they've heard this story probably a million times by now, but I'm going to tell it again anyway. <laughs> um, when I was 10 or 11, um, first of all, I was an only child, no siblings, so as you can expect, I was probably a little bit spoiled, you know? And uh, for whatever reason, I wanted bunk beds. And I begged my parents for bunk beds for like a year. And I think I got them for Christmas or something like that. And and uh, I would rotate sleeping on the, between the top and the bottom bunk, just whatever I felt like sleeping on. And, and one night I was sleeping on the top bunk. And um, I've always had, ever since I was a child, I've always had problems sleeping. And... Um, I very rarely do I ever sleep all the way through the night. I usually wake up at least once or twice for, you know, periods of half an hour to 45 minutes or so before I can go back to sleep. And I was lying there and I had woken up and I was trying to go back to sleep. And my mother kept a nightlight on in the hall and she would get up frequently at night to like go to the bathroom or get something to drink or sometimes just check on me if I was sick or something. And she always liked to have a light burning. And as I was lying there trying to go back to sleep, I heard these footsteps that sounds like, uh, you know what, what bare feet sounds like on carpet. Mm -hmm. And now this was back, this was the seventies. So we had the, you know, the, the thicker shag type carpeting and I could hear the crunching of feet on carpet really slow. And at first I thought, well, this, it's my mom. She's, you know, getting up to go to the bathroom or something. And then I realized that it wasn't coming from my parents' room because my parents' room was across the hall from mine. And this was coming from up the hall towards the front of the house. And very, very slowly it walked and it got to the threshold of my door and stopped. And then I heard something sigh and turn around and walk off. And it scared the heck out of me. And it, you know, I know it wasn't my mom. I know it wasn't the family dog. And I had a good bird's eye view of everything. And the nightlight was on. So I had a good, you know, light source to, 
to see by, and it wasn't any of the household members. It wasn't a living soul in the house. And I don't know what it was. Um, never happened again, as far as I know, at least not to me. And the, we were the the first family to live in that house, bought it brand new. So it's not like there was a death or anything that had happened before. And my, my in fact, my mother still lives in the home. So, you know, um, I have no idea what the heck it was or why it would have chosen to come through my house. But that's kind of what got me started as a little kid. I was 10 or 11 and I've just been like fascinated with it ever since. And, uh, like you said, uh, when we talked on the phone the other day, we're just all searching for, for answers, you know? So it, well, that's interesting. Um, a lot of people, like kids, have experiences like that. Um, you know, where you're kind of in bed and you have like a, not a dream, but an experience that kind of is like a supernatural encounter. And yeah. I know a lot of research has been done into the possibility that maybe kids are more open to mm-hmm. the thing. You know, they're they're not sort of drummed into them. Oh, this is all nonsense. So their minds right. are more receptive, and maybe that's why a lot of kids have sort of supernatural experiences in the sort of early years, sort of three, four, five, six, seven, or whatever. Yeah. Now, I know that, that you don't do a lot of uh, the paranormal, such as, you know, ghosts and hauntings and, 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 and stuff like that. Um, no, I don't. And But not because I don't believe in any of that stuff. I actually, you know, I do think there's a great deal to it. But the main reason is it's not something that, overly sort of excites me and yeah. um, I'm certainly by, by no means an expert in any of these other fields either so my view is um, instead of me sort of running around blundering into an investigation <laughs> I don't know uh, on a subject I don't really know that much about right. you know, beyond reading the occasional book I'd sooner leave that up to the experts and then you know let them do it I mean that, that's not my sort of area of research but I do believe that there's some sort of afterlife and um, I think there are sort of uh, you know things can come back I mean like most people I've had sort of a couple of weird experiences after a death like a close death and I think everybody can kind Mm -hmm. of relate to that even if we don't have all the answers as to as to what's going on so why um, is it that UFOs and and alien abductions. Why, 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 why does that fascinate you out of the most out of everything? Well, I would say UFOs and cryptozoology are my main two areas, and I, you know, I, I, it's difficult to sort of say why. I guess it's why one person likes coffee, one person likes yeah. tea, and um, there's there's no way really for me to explain it beyond the fact that both subjects fascinate me, and out of the two, I'd say probably cryptozoology more, but. Um, my main area when it comes to um, the UFO subject is sort of digging into the declassified government files which have surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act mm-hmm. and um, I used to spend a lot of time going to official archives and you know going through the old records and, and files to see what's been released and if there are any interesting material in all these old files going back to the 40s and 50s because a lot of people don't realise you can go to somewhere like the National Archives in Maryland. And because there are literally millions and millions of files on on display there, people don't realise that even though they've been declassified for years, you know, a, a significant percentage have never been gone through by the general public because 
with so much material and you really don't always know what to look for because the title is often obscure so you it's better to sort of go there and spend five or six days just digging into them and pulling them off the shelves and and just going through them you might be the first person that's sort of ever looked at them so it's kind of like the way i look at it is it's if you go looking for this material it's never been found before mm-hmm. nobody's been through this far before then there might be something really interesting in there that's that's worth taking the time to look for you know i bet you've become quite uh an expert at digging through those files haven't you well, yeah, you've got to sort of know where to look because a lot of the files, I mean, if you're looking for UFO files, for example, they're not necessarily titled UFO sighting at this particular base or that base. Mm-hmm. You might find that a particular military base, let's say hypothetically in, in Nebraska, um, has like a daily logbook, and those logbooks have been declassified. Well, you might find that the report was written up in the logbook by whoever prepares that daily log Mm -hmm. and and it wouldn't be titled ufo report you know that the file itself it would just be the logbook for that base so in other words looking at the title of the declassified file would not tell you anything about what's in there so often it's a case of trying to figure out what might be an interesting file to look at for example if you go if you go there and you see there's a new bunch of say science and technical files released by the Department of Defense from 1950. You know, mm-hmm. there might be something interesting in there because purely the nature of the files. So, right. occasionally I've done that, look through them, and, and you will find like a UFO briefing that was given at the Pentagon or something like that. But, uh, I mean, it kind of sounds exciting, but on the other hand, I would sort of stress that five or six days just spent sort of pouring over box after box, and most of it's sort of very bureaucratic material. It gets a little bit tedious after oh, a while. It does but if sound boring. you occasionally boring, yeah. stumble on something that's sort of really cool, then it then it pays off if you like. So when you when you go there, do you have uh, like um, an idea for a book already in mind, or do you just decide, hey, I'm going to go spend a few days dig through the archives and then get an idea from what you find? Yeah, I mean, I've never sort of gone there with a particular idea in mind, um, <clears throat> mainly because um, you just really don't know what you're going to find until you get there or what you're not going to find. So sort of go in with a, like a preconceived idea, I'm going to find this or look for this. Mm. You know, you might come up disappointed. But on the yeah. other hand, if you just go and you wonder that what are you going to find? Well, if you find something interesting, then you can use that as like a springboard to look further, and um, and that's what I've tried to do is is with all books really is not try and force it. And I mean, there's there's been some books where I've written maybe sort of fifty, sixty, hundred pages, and the story has stalled. I haven't been able yeah. to go any further with it. You know, the witnesses are dead, and there's simply not enough material to make it into a full length book. I've probably got you know probably more than a dozen sort of semi finished or semi written books that probably will never get written because I said the, the material just isn't sufficient. Now, other times um, I've been looking, just stumbled on a story, and then the more I've dug into it, reams of material have surfaced to where I could write a book on it. So you can never really be sure, you know, whether a book or even how a book, if it's going to work yeah. at all. You ever thought about taking all those unfinished uh, stories and putting them together in some sort of collection, you know, unfinished works by Nick Redfern. 
could, but I mean, I, I think if people found it really interesting, they might be kind of disappointed if at like page 35 it suddenly came to a grinding halt, you know what I mean? And it's probably more frustrating than, than not to read it, if you see what I mean. But yeah. um, I mean, some of them, it's, it's not because I wasn't able to do the research, it was just that, I mean, maybe two or three people had told me a story and it was like strands of the same story. And despite as much digging and sort of investigative work as I could do, it just did not go past those three people and their information was limited and, and I never got another thing on it. And that's that can be a problem because when it's a really cool story, you'd want to be able to take, take it further, yeah. obviously. But, um, but I, I would stress it doesn't happen all the time, but, you know, over the course of sort of 20-something years, um, you know, I've put together probably read about 10, 11, 12, 13 manuscripts where they said the sort of 30, 40, 50 page mark, they sort of stall. But you never, you never know. I mean, I haven't destroyed it or anything like that because somebody else could come forward one day and it it, it can be sort of such an unpredictable world when you're writing about paranormal stuff because somebody may, or you know, people contact me a lot because of the book writing mm-hmm. and they tell their stories. So, it may well be one day somebody will come forward and say, hey, got a story for you. And then I'll think, well, hang on. This is that one I was researching 15 years ago. Yeah. So it, that's why I keep these on file, because you never know one day things might sort of swing around the other way. Yeah, and it's it's always good to um, go back every once in a while and, and look through the old stuff and say, hey, yeah, you yeah. know, I... I forgot about this. Let me see what I can find now. Maybe there's something that's yeah. that surfaced. So, yeah. And how long does it take you typically when when you get an idea for a book? How long does it typically take you to you know sit down and and bang it out? Um. Well, the the writing process for an average book probably takes about three months, which some people might think that's what not very long. But you know, because I do it full time, I work pretty much eight to five, Monday to Friday. I don't work evenings, don't work weekends. I like to sort of just have a regular, normal life. I'm know, jealous of that. Treat in terms of the way I approach it as like a, you know, as a job, as where I turn the computer on at sort of seven, do emails, blog stuff, yeah. you know, chat with friends on Facebook, then I usually get on about eight, go through till five, Monday to Friday. And if you're sort of writing a book, eight to five, Monday to Friday for three months, solid, um, you can get a lot, done um the main thing with books i guess is either doing the research or if it's like the way i do the cryptozoology books where i go on an expedition and you've got to get all the background material together Mm -hmm. first before you um actually start writing the book so a lot of it is dependent on to what extent you've got all the material in hand before you start now if it's say for example a book that's solely based on official files i've written sort of three or four like that yeah. well, if you've got all the files then you you can start right away you've got them all next to you but sometimes i'll approach a publisher and i'll say hey you know i'm going on this particular expedition and i think it'll turn out to be a good book are you interested and they ask me to put together like a synopsis and a and i you know the theme of it yeah. and they say yeah that sounds great and i'm like well it's going to be sort of a two-week expedition or whatever, then I need to get all the background stuff. So that'll give me like six months maybe, uh, where the three months is sort of to get all the material together, do all the research, 
get all the pictures on the expedition, and then the three months of the writing. Um, so I, I kind of do about two books, excuse me, about two books a year, um, spread across two lots of three months writing is six months, and then the rest is research, and then doing a lot of little projects. Um, as I said earlier, I do a lot, a lot of freelance writing outside of the paranormal world as yeah. well. Um, you know, when you're self-employed and as a writer, <laughs> you have to go where the work is. People think if you write books, you know, you're sort of living in the Hollywood Hills and driving a Ferrari or whatever. But yeah. it's, uh, it's not quite like that. <laughs> and you've got this big uh, studio at home. Yeah. notoriously hazardous job. <laughs> yeah. Put it that way. Yeah, the, the thing you've got this big library at home, this big studio where you sit down with a you know a bunch of books and you start writing it out, and you've got you know your cigarette hanging out of your mouth and stuff. And <laughs> yeah, um, I've I have uh, I've not written a book, but I've I've been published in a, a, a few um, um, magazine you know uh, things, and and uh, actually I. I I wrote a chapter in a book for a friend of mine and um, it's really um, I'm I'm no, you know, professional author or anything. And you can certainly tell it by the way that I, that I write. And I'm sure if I did it more frequently, I would get better. But just that, for example, that one chapter that I wrote in a book, um, it, the process was really more difficult than what I thought it was going to be. And I thought, Oh, well, you know, he wanted me to, to, write a little bit about something, you know, paranormal or whatever. So, you know, I thought, oh, easy. And it didn't turn out to be that easy. But I I don't think people really have a genuine sense for, you know, how difficult it really is to be a a full-time author. You know, it's it's hard. Well, yeah, I mean, in terms of writing, you sort of really got to develop your own style. But also you've got to write in a way that, Captivates the reader and and, right. them and pulls them into the story. So, in other words, you've got to have sort of an opening section that that grabs them, that yeah. captures their attention, makes them want to keep reading. And you've got to sort of find a like a good balance between, particularly if you're writing nonfiction and stuff that's documents and history, you've got to keep it to the facts, but also you don't want it to read like as dull as dishwater you, you know yeah. you don't like to sound just like a, an encyclopedia so you have to find a way to get the facts and the data out there but in a sort of compelling way that entertains as well you know yeah and uh, nick what's your favorite book that you've written so far um uh, probably the probably my favorite is one actually i wrote um just last year excuse me 2012 called wild man and it was a study of all the reports of sort of like um, wild men and Bigfoot-type creatures that have been reported mm-hmm. in Britain over the centuries. And people think of uh, Bigfoot, they think of like North America or the abominable snowman of the Himalayas and right. so on. But there have been a surprising number of reports of Bigfoot-like creatures and sort of out-of-place apes and all sorts of weird stuff in the UK going back pretty much a thousand years since recorded history began, um, you know, in terms of writing in the UK. Um, and I always wanted to do a book on this, and because the main reason being that where I grew up in central England, uh, it's like a heavily forested and wooded area, and there are a number of reports like this that I heard of when I was a kid. 
and they fascinated me. And um, so that was one of the probably the favourite, or at least one of the favourite books to write because I always wanted to do something that put me like a complete study of all the British Bigfoot type reports. Now, I'll be honest, I haven't, I know the book that you're talking about, but I haven't read it. So did you do, uh, I, I'm assuming you did some expeditions for for research for that? Yeah, I mean, that one, I mean, Britain being kind of a small country, it's only sort of um, 700 and something miles long from the bottom of England to the top of Scotland. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you can sort of travel around the country quite quickly. And um, not too far from where I used to live in England uh, was a little village called Ranton which is sort of surrounded by woods and fields and they haven't really changed much. It's like one of these, for hundreds of years, it's like one of these little villages you expect to see in some Sherlock Holmes murder story or yeah. whatever, you know. And um, they have a, a legend there of a creature called the Man Monkey, which supposedly haunts um, an old canal bridge. And it's a very sort of spooky-looking canal bridge. It has, that, that hasn't changed either. Wow. Basically, the, the, the road, the bridge, is like a stretch of the road. And mm-hmm. the canal is about 50 or 60 feet below it. And like, there's like a little rough pathway where you go from the road down to the canal. And it's just shrouded in so many trees that the trees have actually sort of grown over the canal into to create like a combined canopy. So it's almost like you're in a tunnel. And it's very weird. And it goes on like that for a long time. And a lot of people don't realize it's even there because they said it's, it's 50 feet below the road. And the road is just surrounded by forest as well. So it's very much hidden. And there's a story that goes back to the 1800s of this creature called the Man Monkey, which is described as almost like a supernatural creature. It looks like a half-human, half-ape, very kind of skinny and agile creature, not like a large, lumbering Bigfoot, and about five feet tall, with these large, glowing eyes, these silvery, glowing eyes. And it's sort of alleged to haunt at the bridge, you know, and scare people and jump out on them. And... um, I've got a lot of reports um, on that particular case. I actually wrote a book on that incident, on the man monkey, called Incident, interestingly enough, Man Monkey, <laughs> the title <laughs> of the book. And uh, not the most original title, but it was to the point. Yeah. But since the book came out, I've got other reports. So I was able to expand on that sort of chapter in the Wild Man book. And um, so, yeah, I, I always like to go out and do investigations for several reasons, because you can get pictures you know people read a book they want to see pictures they want to you know mm-hmm. get visualize it in their mind as to where i mean they don't want to have to just be, visualize it in the mind as to where you were they want actually to see the the pictures so that's what i always do and also it gives you sort of a feel for the area when you're writing about it um i mean i, I see a lot of sort of lazy stuff where people just pick things off wikipedia or google or whatever yeah. without having gone there but you can always tell i think when a person's been to a place because they you can tell they're writing from experience um mm-hmm. you go somewhere you kind of get the vibe and the atmosphere of what it's like and and the people and the surrounding <coughs> area and the architecture and everything else so that's why i always feel it's important to actually do on-site research not just because you're looking for something but you want to get if you're right about it, you want to be able to capture the elements of what the area is. Yeah, and it, I think that's very important, especially when you're you're writing about the topics that you're mm. you're writing about. I mean, you 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 really want to because I mean, how many of of us are gonna have the opportunity to say, oh, I'm gonna go to this little village and 
over in the UK and, you know, see this bridge and look for the man monkey or whatever. I mean, you know, I'm not, I've been over there, you know, as a, as a tourist, but I, you know, how many times am I going to, in my life, am I going to have the opportunity to pack up and go do an investigation like that? So it's really important to, you know, get us immersed in it because half of the, well, three quarters of the joy of reading are the images that you form in your head. You know, because yeah. as you read a book, you have the movie playing in your head. That's why the movies are never as good as the books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Um, well, that's, that's why I kind of got into things like John Keel, because Keel was a really sort of descriptive, imaginative writer where, mm-hmm. again, he would sort of pull you. And it wouldn't just be he would talk about, well, somebody saw Mothman. You know, he would talk about the, the skies and the clouds coming in and the wind blowing and all that, you know, and really kind of amped up the atmosphere yeah and it's it's always good to have something you know descriptive like that because the the if the reader can't imagine what it is that you're talking about you know clearly then they're going to lose interest in now you've just you've just got a bad book review and you've lost a fan or something you know yeah um another book that you wrote um is, and I, I've already said this a couple of times, is the first book that I ever read by you, and it's one of my favorites, it's Three Men Seeking Monsters. Mm-hmm. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that because sure. it, I think when I when we talked the other day, I told you, um, you know, when I read that book, it gave me, you know, it was like I was a little kid in my treehouse, you know, going on some sort of grand adventure or something. It was, it was really, I really liked that book. And one of the things that I've noticed as I've, I've read your books over the years is that you may have a subject like three men seeking monsters where you, you know, go out on this, this quest or this journey, but there's always with, within your books like that, there's always a, a backstory that has to do with the human interest of things and the interaction of, of your friends that were, that are with you or, or whoever you may be with. So yeah. to, how did this, that whole thing with the, the, the trip, you know, traveling through England to, to do this, how did all this come about? What was, what was the deal with that? Well, the, um, it goes back to sort of 1998 when I first met, excuse me, 97, a good friend of mine, John Downs. And John yes. runs the Centre for Forty and Zoology in England. It's a full-time group, Forty, and he's named after Charles Fort, um, right. who wrote in, used to do basically what I do, but like 100 years ago, write books and do investigations. And um, John's group is <coughs> full-time, and they do a lot of expeditions um, around the world, so like Guyana looking for giant snakes and... Um, uh, going to uh, Mongolia looking for a weird creature known as the death worm. So they do a lot of yeah. on-site investigations around the world. And um, me and John went to Puerto Rico um, a few years ago, actually 10 years ago now, uh, to do an investigation into the Chupacabra. And mm-hmm. so all of us in the group have sort of done a lot of on-site investigations over the years. And so <laughs> basically it was a case of, <laughs> like I said earlier, with the UK being small, you can do a lot of investigations in a small time. Yeah. And that book basically chronicles the various investigations that I did, John did, Richard did, 
uh, some weekly together on the road and um, and then combines them all into sort of like um, that, that's probably the first book I've ever written where it's, it's written from in like a novel style if you yeah. see what I mean yeah but it but it takes real people and real places and real events but I, I wrote it from you know John said this I said this that kind of thing and um, yeah. so I always wanted to do a book in sort of the, the genre of what's become known as gonzo journalism which is sort of like the hunter s thompson style yeah you know where you um or sort of or the early version earlier versions where it was called gonzo like jack kerouac where it's sort of written on the road and it's all real people real events but it's written in kind of like that stylized novel way yeah um and so that that was basically the theme of that book it sort of captured hopefully the essence of all the different, the different characters and what goes on on a road trip where, you know, people think, oh, it's all very scientific and serious, which it is, but then you have a laugh and a good time doing it as well. You know, you sort of jump in the car or the van or whatever and you crank up the music and mm-hmm. then you're out in the woods at night and you get back and everybody hangs out and has a good time. So that, that was sort of the theme of the book. It, was, it wasn't so much just about looking for weird creatures. It was sort of the story of these three guys as to what motivates them and their own yeah. eccentricities, if you like, and, you know, all the other things that, that make us who we are and, and so on. I always thought it should have been three men seeking monsters and drinking beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, that's what we do in England. That's, like, uh, that's uh, one of our major pastimes is drinking beer. <laughs> the real beer, not this watered-down American stuff. <laughs> What, what do you th- oh, I'm not going to get an argument about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not a beer drinker myself. I, I mean, yeah, I like um, I like a lot of German stuff and, um, you know, sort of the stronger lagers, that, that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, my, my, girl, my girlfriend would get along great with you because she, she is a beer connoisseur and does not – she does not like the – like the bud and the coors and all that, it, she wants the real stuff. Yeah. And well, I don't dislike bud and coors. It's for me, it's um, it's not that strong, and it's kind of a bit watery. I kind of like it. I don't like it. I actually don't like dark beer. Like it's kind of a myth that everybody in England drinks warm dark beer. They yeah. actually don't. But most people drink cold beer. Yeah. Um, but I kind of like it to have a bit more of a bit more strength to it and um, yeah. you know so it's more, a bit more body uh, if you like well when when we went over to London uh, in 2009 uh, mm-hmm. we had one of those uh, well of course there's what a six hour time difference so yeah. we were very jet lagged when we got there and I think it was like at 11 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. over there and we were just totally beat and destroyed so the first thing we did is we checked in a hotel room and we slept for like four or five hours mm-hmm. and we got up got dressed and was like okay we're gonna go out and we're gonna you know we're gonna see something our first night here because so i just don't want to spend it sleeping what are we gonna do and she was like we're going to get a beer <laughs> that was the very first thing that was number one on her list and that's the first thing we did was have a beer i got a picture of that somewhere so well, you, you have no trouble finding a pub in england no Every street corner. Yes, almost. there was, there was. So you and you would you need to go out drinking with her because y'all would get along great. She <laughs> see who can can drink the most. Yeah, we can out drink each other. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, the the three men seeking monsters. Getting back to that, uh, that was kind of like part of what turned out to be a trilogy because you had uh, 
after that, well, not immediately after that, but in kind of the same genre, you have uh, Memoirs of a Monster Hunter, and then uh, I think the other one was There's Something in the Woods, which kind of, to yeah. me, I, I always, I, I've read all three of those, and I link those as like a, a trilogy of sorts. Did Was that kind of, did it just kind of like come out that way? I'm sure you didn't have that in, in mind when you first started. No, I, I didn't have it in mind, but it, it did ultimately come out like There's actually a, another one that came out at the end of 2012 called Monster Diary, which follows on from There's Something in the Woods. Um, oh, God, i got to read that. But essentially, um, again, you know, kind of when you're writing books or doing investigation, you never know where it's going to lead. And, um, and so at the end of Three Men Seeking Monsters, certainly, you know, I had no expectation... I wouldn't say I didn't have an expectation, but I had no information or data that would have allowed me to write another book, you know, in that kind of diary on the road style. Uh-huh. But, um, you know, again, when you write in books, you do TV shows, things like this, uh, you end up sort of traveling around. And um, so whereas Three Men finished in 2001, that was when I moved to the U.S. And... Um, when I, did, when I started writing books in the U.S., kind of like in England, you know, I do TV shows, contact you, I did a traveling around, and, mm-hmm. um, and then in 2004, me and John, John Downs from Three Men Seeking Monsters, we went out to Puerto Rico and did a weeks-long investigation into uh, the Chupacabra. Right. And then uh, did various other investigations of Bigfoot reports, um, sort of on the border of Texas and Louisiana, where it's very heavily forested. And... Um, so in other words, between sort of 2001, when I went first came to the U.S., excuse me, when I moved to the U.S., I should say, and between then and 2004, 2005, um, I did other expeditions to Puerto Rico as well. And then I sort of encompassed all that into a book called Memoirs of a Monster Hunter. Mm-hmm. Then from 2006, uh, most of 2006, we back in England again. Um, but then came back here and did a lot more investigations, and and that sort of was the thrust of the something in the woods that book. Then the 2012 book Monster Diary that covers all the stuff I did, sort of 2009 to 2012. Like for example, um, a Mothman investigation in Wisconsin, um, a hunt for a skinwalker in the deserts of California on on Native American uh, land. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like this so you know but there, there's never a sort of an expectation or a a way to do this had I not sort of been on the expeditions in the first place so I, yeah. I kind of look at a book I never really sort of plan any book in advance because how do you know what you're going to be doing next week or the month after mm-hmm. so it, what I write about is very much dependent on what comes along and you know the experiences I have but sometimes I write a book because a publisher will approach me and they'll say, hey, we're looking for a book on this particular subject. Would you be interested in writing it? So in other words, sometimes it's not always me who comes up Mm. with the idea. The publisher uh, will sometimes come up with an idea as well and suggest it to me. Now, do do you write for more than one publisher? Yeah, I do. And and, and most of them, well, I won't say most, they're all fine providing you don't do something that's, you know, exactly the same for another publisher, like just six months or a year later. Right. Some of them have clauses where they'll say, you, know, you won't write a book on this particular subject for five years after our book. Wow. And that's fine, I understand that. But for the most part, they're pretty relaxed. Um, 
I mean, they don't mind if I do a, a UFO book for one publisher and the other one doesn't mind if I do another UFO book for another publisher, provided it's different aspects of the subject. You know, right. if I did a book on Roswell for one company and then a book on Area 51 for another company, that's fine. But if I did sort of for one company a book title, The History of Alien Abductions, and then for another one I did The Alien Abduction A to Z, <laughs> that, that would be a, you know, that would be a big problem. That would be a problem, but, yeah. But yeah, I write sort of, uh, well, I write for new page books uh, anomalous books, uh, Visible Ink Press, those are the three US companies I write for, and in the UK, CFC Press, which is John Downs' company. And in the past, I've written for um, Simon & Schuster. So uh, overall, I've been with about five or six different publishers, and um, but I have an agent who handles all the contracts with those because, you know, I'm not a writer. My background's not in contracts and the legalities and the the terms and the clauses and all that, right. you know, um, I'm happy to to pay my agent you know, 15% to, <laughs> to deal with all that. <laughs> it's worth stuff. it, huh? Yeah. yeah. Um, what, um, we, we've talked about your, your most favorite book. Mm-hmm. So what has, so far has been something that you were excited to do and then, you know, you got into it and you're like, oh, this really isn't what I thought it was going to be. I, I guess your your least favorite yeah, I'd probably say it was a book. I, I wouldn't say <clears> the <throat> least favorite book because it's just least favorite. I think it's least favorite because of the way I wrote it. It was a book I had published in '99 called Cosmic Crashes, and it was a study of crashed UFO reports in the UK, kind of mm-hmm. like British Roswells. And right. there aren't that many of them. There's probably um, maybe eight or nine stories, and one or two actually are quite intriguing, the rest are quite vague on information. And I, I kind of regret the fact that I wrote it totally from the perspective of, of a believer. I, th- I think I was sort of too, because these stories had never been addressed before mm-hmm. and they weren't overly detailed in some cases, I think I was sort of uncritical. I wasn't critical enough in terms of studying them. Yeah. I wrote it kind of road trip style again, but um, it doesn't, it wasn't, I don't think it was balanced enough in terms of, well, maybe this one was a crashed UFO, maybe this one was like some remotely piloted vehicle of the military, yeah. maybe this was a meteorite. I, I, I think it was sort of too biased, and um, and it came across like that. So I don't regret writing it, but if I could go back, I would sort of change it to have more of a, like a balanced um, theme to it rather than trying to think, well, yeah, this is, I really do think this is a UFO, um, and it may have been, but I, I just don't think I, I presented both sides of the story yeah. enough. But you, these are things you learn, you know, when you write. Yeah, you, uh, yeah. You sort of cut your teeth or whatever on on the experience and the feedback. Do you find it hard to, to be unbiased when you're writing a book on topics like that because you are a believer? Um, actually, no, because I think... I mean, it's like when you... Let's, let's say, for example, crashed UFO stories... There are some really interesting ones, like the Roswell story and the Kingman one of 1953 in Kecksburg in 1965. So if I'm writing about the subject and I come across a hoax story, I don't mind doing a chapter on a hoax. Uh, But then I would sort of end it by saying, you know, just because this one was a hoax doesn't mean they're all hoaxes. There are actually good evidence that they're not. So in other words, I think... um, 
from my perspective, I don't mind, um, you know, sort of the um, the sceptical look at aspects of it, you know, because I think it's important to have, not, not a, obviously a debunking mind, and not a sceptical mind from the idea of it's all nonsense, because I certainly don't think it is. You know, I'm a full-on mm -hmm. believer. But I think it's important to be balanced. So if I come across a case that was a hoax, I actually write that up and say, you know, these are the pitfalls that you can sometimes fall into and to be aware of and be, be aware of. Uh, but in saying that, for every two people who try to deceive you or hoax you, there are 200 who just want legitimate answers as to what they saw. And I think if you, if you can get that across to the reader, that you're, you know there's something to it, but you're not uncritically just standing there wide-eyed and with your mouth open, accept, <laughs> accepting everything that comes in. I think yeah. that's better than actually just uncritically accepting everything. Yeah, and I think that that taking a, a, a hoax and and writing a chapter about it, or, or or at least addressing it somehow, and saying, "Hey, look, this was a hoax," you know. I think it goes a long way in credibility for the author, aka you, um, because you're willing to say, "Hey, you know, here's a hoax, and I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna let you know about it," as opposed to just being biased and saying, "Well, that's a hoax, so I'm not gonna put that in my book because it doesn't fit in with my beliefs or whatever." So I think that goes a long way in your credibility. Yeah, I mean, I have friends and colleagues who I know have got. <laughs> hoax cases and they just bury them because they feel if they publish them then it's going to affect their credibility but I actually think it's the other way around completely, I don't think there's anything wrong personally with investigating something and if it falls apart and the person is shown to be a hoaxer or a fantasist or both then I don't think it hurts to sort of present the story in an entertaining kind of dissection or anatomy of a hoax yeah and tell people that, you know, this is this does sometimes happen. You can go out somewhere and you think it's a really good case when you first sort of hit the road and then you get there and you find the person's as nutty as a fruitcake and they've got <laughs> and then you find like a little model saucer hanging up on a piece of cot in one of the <laughs> yeah. rooms or whatever, you yeah. know. Uh, that turns out to be that's what was in the photograph. You know, that kind of that was hypothetical, but that kind of thing, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um and I and I don't think there's anything wrong with telling people that it's um unfortunately it is part of the subject i wish it wasn't but unfortunately it is you know mm, most people yeah. are legitimately good people looking for answers as to what they saw and they just want to know you know what what was that large hairy creature in the woods or what was that strange light in the sky exactly but there are always some people who just whether for obscure reasons or just mental illness or whatever feel the need to sort of you know, um, fabricate a photograph or yeah. or whatever, and um, and you just got to be careful. You know what you accept and what you don't. Now, since we're 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 on the subject of of stuff like that, um, I know you you probably get contacted a lot for mm. uh, interviews for shows such as such as myself or or people who've who've had some sort of experience or or want to tell you about it. Have you ever just someone contacted you and said, hey, Mr. Redfern, I had this happen to me or whatever, and you just thought they were absolutely, totally, completely off their rocker? 
Um, a couple of t- a couple of times. I, I mean, I have to be honest. Most people are, do contact me, and and when it's when they want to relate an experience, they come across as just regular people, which they are. You yeah. know, regular people have unusual experiences, and uh, I have to say, probably the vast, like 95, 96% of all people, probably more than that maybe, are just legitimately good people wanting answers. But yeah, there have been a couple of cases where people have contacted me and, you know, the, the stories are just beyond bizarre. Um, very often, you know, they, I, I mean, I can kind of tell the ones that come across to me as like a fantasy where somebody's had an encounter with aliens and, um, well, you know, they'll start talking about how the alien was named. You know, he, he was a colonel or he was a captain, yeah. you know, in the space fleet from this star system or whatever. Well, and I said, well, is that what he called himself, colonel or captain, whatever? And they're like, yes. And that's a true story, by the way. And, <laughs> well, no alien on a, on a, in a galaxy on the other side of the universe or whatever is going to have a title of captain. Yeah, so that's an English, that's an Earth term, you yeah. know. So the I, things like that, I think for me, are sort of a, a pointer towards the idea that it was, um, that it was a fantasy or a lie or whatever. Um, and when, when it's when the they say you know the aliens talked in, in a fashion that I thought, what did they say to you? Um, and they said, oh, you know, we'll we'll be back to see you soon or whatever. Well, yeah. they're just using sort of. English language and colloquialisms mm-hmm. and slang and all sorts and yeah. that to me is like a sign of a like a red flag sign that well this you know no disrespect but it cannot be true because that's how we talk that's the titles we have um, not how sort of creatures from the other side of the universe would have that would be definitively alien. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, and no, I'm not talking about like the contact sea cases where they look alien, like they where they look human mm-hmm. and they interact with us. I think there's a lot to those stories, but when when it becomes so humanised to where they're using our slang and things like that, I find a lot of those stories difficult to accept. You know, at first glance. How how do you handle stuff like that? What do you do? Well, I mean, if if somebody is comes across like a fantasist. You know, and, and I've found that a couple of times. I think that's more that's more tragic and sad for the person that mm-hmm. they, you know, I've found this also a couple of times where they really don't have anything or anyone in their lives and and they become caught up in this fantasy of their own creation. And um, and it's a shame for them. You know, I don't hold any animosity. I just thank them and, and that's it. Yeah. But I, it's clear, I think, from my perspective, in some cases I've looked into, it's their subconscious creating something because they really don't have anything in the real world. Yeah. Um, now, in other ones, if it's people who've tried to maliciously hoax me, you know, I'll I'll go after them full barrel, so to speak. Uh, because, I mean, again, like I said, most people are cool people, they just want answers. But, I, you know, I don't have time to waste time on somebody who creates, like, a photograph on the computer or whatever, and then sends it to him and says, what do you think of this? Yeah. You know, and then I send it on to a colleague who works in the field of sort of photographic analysis, and I'll say, well, hang on, you know, the pixel levels around the image itself are wrong, and it's clearly been superimposed. Those sort of people, when that happens, I just, you know, let fly on them, because 
well, you why, should. Why do it? You know, yeah. why waste people's time? Is that all you've got time to do with your time? You know. Uh, it seems like um, people like that are looking for attention any way they can get it. I think. Um, well, some people are looking for attention, and I think you know there a very small percentage are you know it's just a fantasy thing, mm-hmm. um, and some of them just want to kind of. I think you know, it's not just attention; they want to become a part of something. It's not always done maliciously. Sometimes they wish they're part of this community or whatever and, mm-hmm. and the best way they can think of doing it which for me is the wrong way but is to try and make themselves an important person in that right. field by fabricating something right and um you know like i said like a picture or a an abduction experience or whatever mm-hmm. but uh, but I, well, I always want to stress that the, the number of cases i've come across that fall into those categories are very very small you know yeah, well, it's it's like you said earlier. It, unfortunately, when you're dealing with the subject matter that we're talking about here, you're always going to have somebody that is trying yeah. to pull a hoax for whatever reason. Yeah, but I think the problem is, you know, the, the debunkers and the skeptics will say, "Ah, oh, well, that's if this case collapsed because it was a fake, then this one's going to one day as well." But that isn't that isn't how it is. You know, no, most people are legitimate, but uh, unfortunately, the hoax, excuse me, the debunkers love to promote the hoax cases and because they think somehow it casts doubt on the others, but it actually doesn't. You know, it's kind of like um, trying to make a, an opinion on, I don't know, one particular, you know, one particular football team has a bad season. It's like they say, well, they're going to continue to have bad seasons. Well, that, that's ridiculous and there's no yeah. reason, it's the same thing, there's no reason why because 10 people fake something over 50 years but all the other cases are fake. There's no evidence right. combining the two, you know. Yeah, you can't, you can't. One fake does not equal 100% fake with everything. So No, and, no, and it never will, and it shouldn't either. No, but the skeptics who are the diehard skeptics, 100% non-believers, they're going to want to try to put that spin on it anyway. Well, the problem with the... I don't have a, people, a problem with people being sceptical and wanting answers and wanting legitimate research done. You know, that's what I do. And I understand why people don't just want to take something at somebody's word. They want to see evidence. But, and, and a lot of the sceptics, um, well, say some of them at least, will, will do that. They'll actually go out and investigate stuff if they don't believe it. But what I have a problem with is the outright debunkers, these people who pop up on TV shows all the time and say, well, this is just nonsense. And then you say, well, did you actually interview the witnesses? Oh, I don't need to. I can just tell they're hoaxing. Have you ever been to the town where the sightings occurred? I don't need to. I've seen pictures of it on Wikipedia. Those are the people I have a problem with who sit at home in the armchair writing articles saying this person's full of crap or that story's nonsense or whatever. Um... But they don't do any excuse me any investigations, and they don't go out and speak to the people. They just form an opinion on what they've heard and what they've read and everything else. And to me, that's not doing an investigation. That's just offering an opinion, but couched right. it under the guise of, of debunking it or you know being suspicious or whatever. So, have you? Um, I, I know you go on a lot of um, lecture circuits a lot of lecture tours and we'll talk about some of those in a minute but have you ever just uh you know in your experiences with doing that or doing any of your 
research for any of your books, have you ever just ran across a, a skeptic that had a had a decent conversation with you that you could like just be friends and agree to disagree? Oh yeah, I mean that happens a lot. I mean, for example, Good. even within the field of people who aren't skeptics, I mean. There are, for example, abduction cases that some people think are genuine, other people think were hoax, but they yeah. still both believe in the abduction phenomenon, but they may disagree on the intricacies of one particular story. And, and again, like with crashed UFOs, there are some cases, uh, like there's a famous story from Kingman, Arizona, uh, or a more famous one from Aztec, New Mexico, in 1948, of a crashed UFO story. There are a lot of people who believe in the Roswell UFO crash story, yeah. who think the Aztec one is an outright hoax. Um, so, And that's on the part of believers. So in other words, um, yeah, I've had a lot of conversations where, you know, you agree to differ. And if you can kind of, you know, if you've had a conference on the question and answer session, or just sort of hanging out in the bar after the conference where everybody's just sitting around, um, you should be able to discuss discuss stuff and disagree or agree yeah you know i think when you when you people get overly sort of emotional about well you can't question that case it's become almost like a belief driven thing and they cross the line from being impartial impartial researchers into they're just on a crusade to prove it's real because they want it to be real yeah and i think that's when you sort of hit dangerous territory when you lose that impartial approach to it um and but again it doesn't take away the fact that if one person disagrees on an abduction story another person thinks it's real and it falls apart it doesn't mean the phenomenon falls apart it means one case out of thousands didn't stand up to scrutiny but right. i do think it's important that we're able to or it should be important to debate this kind of stuff without actually you know not being able to talk to each other because you know, you just hate the other person. I mean, yeah. I don't have much time for the debunkers who don't do research, but for people who don't share my views and vice versa, you know, I don't have any problem sitting down with them and just having a good chat about it all and trying to figure out what the truth is, you know. And you know, speaking of alien abduction cases, um, I have never really been... Um, I, I, I believe that there are people who have been abducted, certainly. But I, I'm just... I've never thought that it was at the overwhelmingly, astonishingly rate that what people claim, you know, and it, it seems like, you know, everything is always the same. I was in my bed, this beam of light came in or these creatures came in and, it, you know, all of a sudden I'm on a ship or something and I'm, you know, they're probing my anus and all this other sorts of stuff. I, and I'm like, I, why has it always got to be that? It, you know, I, I just never really was a firm believer that it was happening at the rate that what people said it was. And then I interviewed this guy uh, a couple of years ago, and he claimed to be a, an abductee. And it was this. And up until I interviewed him, I was I would always say when it, the subject of of abductions would come up, I would always say the same thing. I believe that they're here. I believe that some people have been abducted, but I just don't think it's as as many as what claim, you know, and then I interviewed this guy and he was the first person that I ever actually talked to who said they had been abducted. And 
it really kind of opened my, there's no kind of to it. It did. It opened my eyes to this whole thing. And now I'm rethinking, you know, well, maybe, maybe it's a little bit more prevalent than what I thought it was, you know, because this, this is a, this is just a normal everyday guy, you know, and he had this happen to him and he wants answers, you know, and it was it, the he is he is so just adamant about you know this is what happened to me and he you can hear it in his voice and when he when he talks about it you can see it in his face that this is something that that truly happened to the man you know so it it it's changed my perspective on that and I think that's a good thing of course. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of controversy surrounding the whole abduction phenomenon. And again, the, the sort of the sheer scale of reports is one of them. It's like, why doesn't the case one of these ships crash? Or if it's hovering over somebody's rooftop at 50 feet above and beaming the person out, why don't the neighbours occasionally see it? That kind right. of thing. Yeah. I mean, w- one of the intriguing answers to this whole mystery is the theory that some researchers have, if they fully believe in the abduction phenomenon, but they think it's more a case of like a like a holographic thing where the the entities, the aliens or whatever they are, whether they're extraterrestrial or interdimensional, who knows? Yeah. But the the scenario that maybe they project the imagery of the abduction into the person's mind, and they're never actually removed from the car or the bed. But the whole process, it's, it's a lot of people have had the abduction experience. Say they feel like they're on a mission and they're taught something. You know, they, they become almost like recruited into some program, if you like. Yeah. But the, the interesting theory is that the idea that what if that imagery occurs in the mind, not because of a fantasy or a hoax or a dream, but because these entities are able to project themselves sort of mentally into the mind to where it creates like a, like a holographic dream scenario, but that is very real but it doesn't occur in the physical 3D world, but it's designed to make you think it is and designed to reinforce the idea of, you know, you're being brought into this program, so to speak, for some future mission or whatever that will benefit the human race. Now, you know, maybe the the theory of the hologram is created to make the experience understandable for the person. You know, it puts it in like a context they can understand. And if that is the case, well, that might explain why there are so many reports, because you don't have the physical issue of thousands of crafts hovering over every third house in America every night or whatever, you know. And it would also possibly explain why the aliens never make mistakes, why another family member never has to fight them off in the hallway at three in the morning. Yeah. It would explain, but it would explain all the issues of why... The aliens never get caught, why a UFO never crashes in the backyard after hovering there for 30 minutes or whatever, why nobody ever manages to steal something from one of the UFOs, even just something small, and bring it back, if it was like a projection by these creatures rather than actually a physical event. So is that that something that that you have formulated over your many years of research, or is that just kind of... uh something that uh, a lot of the abductees are are, are saying they get, they're getting the sense of? Well, it's not, yeah, I mean, it, it is one of these things where it's not just me. I mean, it has sort of, it's a, 
like a scenario that's being formulated by a variety of researchers and people who've had the experience where they felt the number of cases where the person has said they felt kind of like they're out of their body um, where they were or they were still in the bedroom and the, the creatures have got into their mind so to speak and you know when you think of the logistics of a person abducted from their bed you know wearing pajamas or boxes or nothing and then they're brought back and they're the same clothing or non-clothing or whatever and they're just flying back in the bed you think of the logistics of that going on all the time yeah. You have to wonder, how could it be done and, and for a mistake never to be made? Well, you know, if you think that you, you're in a position where you're so highly advanced, you could actually project the message into the person in a fashion that, you know, we'd have, it would have to be, if we're dealing with something definitively alien, which is far in advance of us and, you know, almost incomprehensible, the best way for them to find a way to speak with us would to do it on our terms. So mm -hmm. creating like an abduction motif, which we could understand and appreciate, kind of doing the similar thing we do to lab rats, but then saying to your own good and this is yeah. what you're going to be used for in the future or whatever, makes it understandable. And so when you do have these other aspects to it of sort of out-of-body experience and the person feeling it was in a dreamlike state, I think at least it's worth exploring this aspect at least. Yeah, good point. Uh, do, do you do you think that there's uh, alien species currently like living here on this planet? Um, you, you you mean like moving amongst us or whatever, like that kind of thing? Um, well, either one, either or bases or things like that. Yeah, e e any of the above. Okay. Um, well, I think there could be several things going on. I mean, I think. In terms of the of the phenomenon, sort of being with us continually, I, I sort of waver between whether or not we're dealing with literal extraterrestrials, or whether we're dealing with something that's more interdimensional that coexists with us, you know, in other realms of existence mm -hmm. outside of our three D world. And I think I think there's a lot of good arguments for that particular scenario. And if that is the case, then arguably they would always be living here, but just in kind of like a different frequency or a different realm. And they have the technology to zip in and out rather than coming from, you know, how many light years away on the other side of the universe. So I think in that sense, if the interdimensional or extra-dimensional theory has merit, and I think it does, then they might be right here all the time. You know, they could literally zip in and out of your living room or wherever as a at a second's notice, and that might explain why so many of these cases have a sort of, um, you know, sort of a, a here one minute, gone the next kind of aspect to them. Um, yeah. Now, in saying that, there are also a lot of reports of sort of underground bases and cavernous areas that people have been to and claim to have seen some of these creatures. So, again, you know, the idea of a, a permanent undersea or underground installation or installations uh, would make a lot of sense um, rather than having to keep coming forward from you know, one place or another. If you have like a an outpost hidden here, that would make it a lot easier in terms of whatever it is you're doing here. Um, do you think that there's um, the, the different like 
I don't know uh, the the proper the correct term, but the different the different races. Do you think that there's like um, collaboration between the different factions or whatever? You know, or is each person each each species just doing their own thing? Um, it, it's always difficult to say. I mean, there are some cases where people have seen different types of creature in one experience. Um, you know, a lot of people in abductions talk about the so-called greys, these sort of right. little creatures with the large black eyes, large black eyes and big heads. Um, but in some of those cases, people have also reported seeing sort of large, menacing-looking reptilian-type creatures, mm-hmm. or other or other creatures that become known as the praying mantis, like a giant insect. So when you find these kind of parallels, it, it is intriguing that you have sort of different types of creatures, even different hierarchies, who knows. Um, and so I don't think it's a case as uh, simple as you know, one race is doing this, one's doing that. It's kind of like saying, are the aliens good or bad? Yeah. It's like saying, well, are people good or bad? No, you know, we all have the ability to be good or bad, but your mind knows, you know, it's wrong to sort of murder someone or rob a bank. Right. So most people don't do it, you know. Yeah. And I think it's possibly the same. I, I don't think it's as black and white as, as they're good or bad. And maybe with abductions, although for a lot of people it's traumatic, um, maybe, you know, it, it could perhaps it's traumatic because there's a sinister element behind it. Perhaps it's traumatic, but it's for your own good. You know, most people find it a little bit traumatic going to the dentist. Yeah. It is for your own good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but then again, there are there are a lot of sinister aspects to the abduction thing, where people talk about being implanted and trapped, and you know, we're told it's for our own good, but well, who's to say it actually is? So who knows? Yeah, you can look at it from different angles as to what the motivations are and whether or not we're actually being told the truth about those motivations. And. One more question about the alien abduction thing, then I'll get off that. Uh, have you ever run across anyone who has claimed to have been abducted by more than one alien race? Um, that's a good question. I actually haven't. But what I have, it's either like people being typically contacted by like the grey type things or the so-called space brothers, the very more human-looking ones. Yeah. Uh, but what I have found is a number of cases where people claim to have been abducted by the greys, and then later they've been abducted and hypnotized by military personnel trying to figure out what's going on with the abductions. Okay. Um, you know, as if there's like a covert group somewhere hidden deep within the military that their entire job is to research abductions and keep tabs on the phenomenon and follow and watch the people and occasionally you know bring them in and question them the um, majestic 12 in kind of like a you know a drugged state so uh, i've got quite a lot of stories like that do you do you believe that uh the majestic 12 exists um well the majestic 12 thing is kind of controversial i mean some of the documents were shown to be hoax talking for people who aren't aware of it majestic 12 being this uh, like a super secret group within government and the military and the intelligence community that really oversaw or still oversees the truly sort of guide top secret UFO information and the lower level projects like Project Blue Book, which is sort of the, the window image, so to speak. Um, I don't know 
you know, I mean, we can never say yes or no as to whether or not Majestic 12 exists, and primarily, you know, the argument is based around these few documents that have surfaced, most of them through anonymous sources. Um, but what I do believe is that there, what I fully believe, is that there is some sort of hidden group at an official level that oversees the UFO issue. Now, whether it is called Majestic 12 or something else, well, I don't know. But I think there's enough data, material, and witness testimony to suggest strongly that such a group does exist. And it's not, uh, you know, it's not a fake, it's not a hoax, it's not just a theory. There is so much material that, you know, I, I don't think um, we can, not just not rule it out, I don't think we can dismiss it at all. Because yeah. I think it does exist, but it's buried so deeply, it may not have even be responsible in terms of being covered by official congressional oversight, you know, sort of one of these so-called black budget programs that people, you know, people point the finger at the government and say that government's the bad guys, the Air Force are the bad guys or whatever. I actually don't think they are in the slightest. I think whoever's hiding the, the real deep truth about UFOs is an organisation buried so deeply that even the regular agencies don't know anything. You know, I mean, there could, we're having this conversation right now. There yeah. could at this very time be people, high-ranking people in the Pentagon sitting around saying, so what do you really think happened at Roswell? You know, yeah. because they don't know. And because they don't know, it makes people think, well, if they don't know, and they should know, obviously nothing happened. But I think that's the way, that's the whole way the secret's being kept, is that years ago or decades ago, the whole research program was siphoned off to like a newly then newly created organization whose entire role 24 7 was to investigate this and as i said they're not answerable to anyone their budget comes through black project uh, funding so to speak and you know the average employee of the cia the air force or whoever knows absolutely zero about them you know so you think that they're up so high and so secret that they're untouchable, you know, above yeah. the level of government? I actually do believe that. I think they are untouchable. I think they're incredibly well buried, physically, possibly physically, you know, underground yeah. even, in terms of where they work from, but also buried in terms of maybe there isn't even like an official project title. I mean, that's the way yeah. sometimes um, information leaks out. Well, not leaks out. But say, for example, you know, a document surfaces through the Freedom of Information Act and it mentions a particular project in the documents. Well, yeah. maybe somebody forgot to delete that out when it came up for declassification. And, and then somebody looks into that project. What does that project mean? What did it do? And so that opens that door. I can yeah. easily understand how there could be a program like this that maybe even, you know, they contact each other through such couched by terms that trying to find out its name and who it represents and who represents it, etc. It's, it's going to be an ex extremely difficult task and I think they probably are answerable to know one. They're very powerful and elite, if you like, and, and again, simply not known to the elected government, almost like a, like a shadow government, yeah. if you like. Now, you've done a lot of stuff on um, the men in black, What's your what's your theory on the men in black? Yeah, that's actually probably my favourite subject to write about because it's so fascinating. I'm actually working on a 
a new Men in Black book right now, but um, that'll be the third one I'll have done. And I'm also working on a Women in Black story. People aren't aware there's a lot oh. of Women in Black cases as well, where they're just sort of as creepy and as weird as the Men in Black story. Interesting. But um, my view with the Men in Black is that there are several things going on. Um, you know, when people who are sort of in the UFO field think of the Men in Black, they think of like Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. Right. You know, this sort of um, the angle of government people going around and silencing UFO witnesses. But if you look at the, the real Men in Black reports that go back to the late 40s and, and right up to the present day, they actually don't sound like government agents at all. They, most of the reports are descriptions of, well, they describe the physical descriptions of the men in black are typically, they're sort of about five feet to five feet five tall, very pale, like almost like anemic looking, you know, skin like, the bottle, like a bottle of milk. Yeah. Um, almost anorexic, very shrunken cheeks. They kind of, some people describe them as looking like a, a well-dressed, corpse or a ghoul or a vampire huh. you know they kind of have that sickly ill looking appearance to them they wear these old out-of-date suits and 1940s and 50s style fedora gangster hats or whatever and they often turn up in 1950s cars but they look brand new and sparkling and clean and shiny and they when they they, they very often sort of knock on people's doors late at night and you know, you'd imagine they would force their way into silence. Well, they don't. They wait to be invited in, which is kind of has the vampire mythology yeah. parallel of the vampire can't enter your home the first time until you're invited in. Right. And then on top of that, you know, if you're going to knock on your door at 12 o'clock at night and you look through the spy hole and there's three guys in black suits and black hats just staring towards the door, <laughs> you probably wouldn't let them in. You might even call the police. Right. Well, the weird thing is the people at the UFO experiences do let them in and um, they invite them in to sit on the couch and then the MIB will question them or interrogate them and then when they're satisfied they've got all the answers they get up and leave and the person then thinks why on earth did I let them in why did I do it at midnight and you know I'm just enter the house yeah so it's almost like the MIB are able to take over our common sense factors to where we're pretty much like hypnotized or mind controlled so all of this, the physical appearance, the clothing, the weirdness of them, these sort of mental powers they seem to have, for me, takes it far away from this government angle, which is actually more perpetrated by the you know the world of entertainment. Not perpetrated, that sounds sinister, but I mean presented by the world of entertainment. Yeah. Um, but the real Men in Black stories are far creepier. And they also cross over into paranormal investigation. I know people who've never had a UFO experience, but they've dabbled in Ouija boards, and they've been visited by the Men in Black. Interesting. So I think the Men in Black are sort of a paranormal phenomenon that is somehow connected with the UFO subject, but also connected with other aspects of the supernatural as well. Um, so that they, you know, they're, they're far beyond this sort of image of just government agents or whatever. So do you think that they're aliens themselves are part of this secret shadow government? Well, where it gets complicated is that I found a few cases where there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that people from an official level are actually masqueraded as the weirder MIB to cover their tracks. You know, the, I think there are people in government who know that this weird MIB mystery exists. 
Yeah. And I think they've got some of the answers. But I think even they really don't know what the real nature of the men in black is. But it hasn't stopped them sort of dressing like them and acting like them when they want to go out and interview a witness. And they know that if they, if they sort of adopt this guise and the witness then talks about it, they're just going to be laughed at, you know, oh, you've been overdosing on too many MIB movies or whatever. Yeah. And so, in other words, ironically, and this is where it gets confusing, I think there are the real men in black from somewhere, and you have people in government who've um, presented themselves uh, in that guise and that fashion, you know, they've masqueraded as them. And there could even be several sort of subcategories of men in black. I mean, you talk about the alien angle. Certainly... Some of these men in black, you know, you could make a good argument. They fall into the so-called hybrid category that talk, people talk about with aliens, where they claim that the whole point of abductions is to create creatures that can move amongst us, that are, yeah. sort of look a little bit like us and kind of look a bit like the greys and somewhere between the two. So, you know, their height's slightly shorter than us, but taller than the greys. Their skin is more of the grey colour and they have the sort of this waxy, sickly-looking appearance to them. Um, and that may well be the case, you know, when you've got that genetic angle and then you see these things which are difficult to... Like the MIB, where it's difficult to figure out are they human or not. Now, but you also have a lot of other theories. I mean, one of the most interesting ones is the time travel theory. Yeah. The idea, could it be sort of almost like time cops coming back from the future to try and men broken timelines and to change the present so we don't find out too much about the UFO phenomenon. Um, and this sort of theory relates to the idea that, you know, that when they come back, their clothing looks slightly out of time, their cars are out of time, they don't seem conversant with our mannerisms and fashions and everything else. Well, you know, the, the theory is what if something happens to our civilization in the near future? And 5,000 years from now, all there is left of the 20th and 21st century, a few fragments of stories and images and nothing else. You know, and they, they use that as their basis as to what they wear and how they act when they come back, not realising that they stand out so much because our fashions and trends and everything else changes so quickly. Yeah. So I kind of find the time travel theory to be an interesting one as well. And then, of course, you've got... There's like a whole... Um, aspect of, of the UFO field where people think the phenomenon is demonic, as in literally demonic, rather than extraterrestrial. And so you yeah. have some researchers who think that the UFO phenomenon is like a demonic deception where they believe literal demons are masquerading as aliens to try and get them to sort of follow their, you know, their beliefs and bring them over to the dark side. And then the kind of the related theory with the men in black is that they are like a manifestation of this demonic activity where they get their grips into the people as well and, you know, um, terrorize them even more, so to speak. Yeah, that is a, a uh, definitely not one of the more popular beliefs. I've, I've read a few things about where people think it's demonic and stuff. And Yeah, I mean, I it's, just... you could, there's, there's, there are a lot of different aspects to the Man in Black mystery, and that's what makes it so confusing because I've got a couple of cases, like I said, where people had never even seen a UFO or any sort of vaguely UFO-like experience, but they've been dabbling with Ouija boards and they had experiences where they'd wake up in the bedroom in the middle of the night and see these shadowy three 
guys wearing fedoras with these glowing eyes just glaring at them from the foot of the bed. And yeah. I'm aware of one case where somebody had an MIB experience and after the MIB left, in the for about two days afterwards, they had violent poltergeist activity in the house. So wow. things like that. It's, it's difficult to explain cases like that. And my personal view is, as I said, that there's at least a couple of categories. There's the government angle of wearing those clothes. And certainly back in the 40s and 50s, that was a style guys dressed in anyway. So some mm -hmm. of the reports can be put down to government cases, but not these sort of creepy, weird-looking guys. So there's certainly two categories, and, and who knows, maybe there's even a third. We like the time travel one as well. Well, did you ever watch, um, what was it, Fringe? I think yeah. it was on well, Fox. They, the guys who made Fringe, you can, they were clearly inspired by the weirder men in black. There's, there's no doubt about yeah. that at all. As, as you were describing the, the time travel um, portion of it, that's that's the image that immediately popped in my head was yeah. was the image from Fringe. So, yeah. if you if you have, I don't know if you ever seen a movie, uh, it's called Dark City. It's a sci-fi movie. If you ever get to see that, that probably portrays the Man in Black best of all. Okay, um, it stars um, Richard O'Brien and William Hurt. And it's like setting this weird city that, where there's never any daylight and you only find out towards the end why. Yes, I have seen that. by these strange MIB. But if you watch that film, the way the MIB are portrayed in that film, that is really how they look. Yes, yeah. I have it's seen very, that. Very strange. It's been a long time, but I have seen that, yes. Oh, I, have, okay. I have to watch it again, though, now that you've brought it yeah, up. Yeah, you'll, you'll probably sort of appreciate it more from the Men in Black angle. But that's they're sort of like really skinny, you know, and they look like... Vampires, crossing uh -huh. zombies, dressed yep. in suits. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember those guys. I never got the the Men in Black reference before, so uh, yeah, I'll definitely have to watch it. I'm, I'm sure I'll have a new perspective on it. So, yeah. um, well, we're starting to run out of time, and I have just uh, a few more questions that I want to ask you. And I'm gonna, mm -hmm. I may be putting you on the spot here. I don't know. Um, have you ever heard of a gentleman named Rick Dyer? Oh, the Bigfoot guy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's at it again saying he's uh, killed a Bigfoot. Yeah. Uh, can you... What are, what's, your, what's your opinion on this? Well, my opinion on this and on any story of anyone who claims to have shot and killed a Bigfoot or found a dead body at the side of the road, you know, don't tease us, just bring it forward. Just yeah. show us what you've got. And so... That's why, with all these stories, I remain a total sceptic, because if you've got the body, you're going to change history overnight. Right. So why not just present it? Why tease people? Why create a build-up? You know, and with the Rick Dyer story, don't forget, this is the second time it's happened. Right. And the previous one just fell totally to pieces. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's why and it happens... And it's, and it's surfacing again now, well, you know, again, my view is either go away or, or bring the body to where it can be seen and it can be scientifically studied or just hack a finger off you know, <laughs> and give it to CNN or Fox News and yeah. have them hire somebody to check the DNA and whatever. Yeah. And the body is still safe. It's not going to get stolen. All you've given away is a finger or a thumb. Right. But... For me, the fact that it doesn't happen, and this is the second time 
you know, that this has occurred with him talking about a story of a body, you know, I'll believe any of these stories when the body is actually presented. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. And maybe if he hadn't had, uh, have done that uh, hoax back in, I think it was 2008, and, you know, he actually did go on CNN then. And... Well, yeah, but that, that the problem is it fell apart because yeah. nobody was presented because nobody could be presented because there wasn't one. Yeah. And so that's that's the problem we're in today. You know, it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. I mean, how many times can you shout cry wolf? It's that it's that kind of scenario without without coming up with the wolf. And it's the same yeah. thing with this story of Bigfoot. It's you know, most people certainly never ever get to see Bigfoot. Yeah. Even less people get to find a body. Exactly. You know? and now we're expected to take this view that oh well, this is the second time to one person. No, you know, if, if you're going to talk about this, if you've got a body of a Bigfoot, if you've got a body of a Loch Ness monster, a werewolf or whatever, well, don't just talk about it and remain in the background and do it in a couch, vague yeah. fashion that's just full of intrigue and nothing else. No, just just bring it forward. Well, he's, That's he's, all we're asking. You said you've got the body, bring it forward. Well, he's trying to make money off of it. That's his, that's his number one goal. I mean, he's got... Um... Uh, a well, big I just truck don't see and... how that can happen when, you know, we had the other one, the Georgia hoax, a couple yeah. of years ago. You yeah. know, how can it happen that um, you can expect to make money off something when just a few years ago the previous thing all fell apart? You know? yeah. Well, he's got a, a truck and a, and a trailer, and he's uh, going, supposedly he's going to go cross-country and charge people money oh, okay. to, to walk in the trailer and see the body of the of the Bigfoot. Oh, okay. well, I didn't, I didn't realize, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, well, I guess you could make money that way. Yeah. But, I mean, surely the point's going to come where people are going to want to, you know, not just see a body at a distance or, you know, under a canopy or whatever. Yeah. You know, somebody's going to cry. Well, you know, either give us, like I said, just chop, chop up the top part of the little finger yeah, off. Yeah, exactly. Know? DNA today can find out a tremendous just by a tremendous amount just by looking at that yeah. small piece of evidence. Pull out there. a lot of hair. But obviously, you know? what he would do if it was found to be real, people would be flocking to his exhibit. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. He doesn't make it more money. Yeah, I mean, you don't even have to cut off a finger. You can pull off a wad of hair. I mean, it's it's a well, it's a Bigfoot. It's got lots of hair. You know. <laughs> so I, I just the wanted. Fact that none of this has happened. I don't think, it, and I yeah. don't think it will happen. You know, no. that thumb is not going to be mailed to the leading DNA specialist in the U.S. Yeah, I'm, I'm highly skeptical. As a matter of fact, I am 99.9 percent sure that it's a hoax. So I, I just wanted to get your opinion since you're a crypto guy. And yeah, it's, I'll, I believe it when I see it. But yeah. I just don't understand, you know, why, why somebody wouldn't reveal it? Because if they did reveal it, their life would turn around for the better overnight. Overnight, so they, instantly. Yeah, you know, I mean, I cannot imagine how much a major TV company would offer a person who's got a Bigfoot body to say we're going to be the TV channel that unveils it. Oh my God! Yeah, it'd yes, be, it'd be the ten. It wouldn't be millions. It'd be the tens of millions. Yeah, you know, they'd be bidding through the roof. Yep. Uh, all it would take would be just that one television company, and that yeah. you're you're done. You're you can retire. <laughs> well, I just wanted to get your opinion on that. Uh, since you're a crypto guy, like I said, and and um, by the way, your your book Three Men Seeking Monsters was what really got me interested in the whole um, cryptozoology aspect of the paranormal. So I want to thank you for oh, cool. 
putting me in, in that direction. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, even though you didn't know you were doing it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so before we go, um, do you have any uh, new material that's going to be coming out anytime soon that you can tell us about? Yeah, well, I've got a new book coming out in June. Uh, well, the, the official release date is June the 23rd, but typically what happens is the book starts to service about two, three weeks before. So it'll probably start to appear around about the end of May or thereabouts. So not that long ago, uh, not that long away now. And it's called Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. And it's all about uh, mysterious deaths, uh, mysterious disappearances and... Uh, vanished pilots, aircraft crashes and killings in the field of ufology, ah. you know, where a suicide may not have been a suicide after all or, a, you know, an out-of-the-blue heart attack may have actually been something else. And um, in other words, it's a study of people who may have got a little bit too close to the truth and um, somebody decided to prevent them getting any closer. So that one will be out in sort of end of May, June, Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. Then in September, I've got a book coming out with Brad Steiger, which is called The Zombie Book. And it's like an encyclopedia, A to Z style encyclopedia of sort of everything to do with zombies, whether in movies, novels, TV, uh -huh. folklore, history, mythology, sort of the voodoo and the Haiti stories of, you know, um, mind-controlled zombies people are actually alive but then the yeah. other issue as well of viruses and parallels you know there are entries on things like parallels between the zombie virus in fiction and the way people act when they get rabies you know sort of mm -hmm. the closest thing to like a, a real zombie is, is probably uh, the, today's zombies probably you know somebody at a highly rabid state that kind of thing so there's entries on B for virus or A for apocalypse, that kind of thing. You know? well, I never would have figured you for a zombie guy. Oh, I love zombie stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> I don't know why I, I would find that. that hard to believe. Walking but... <laughs> Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, 28 Days Later. I love all that sort of stuff. I don't know why I would why that should that should surprise me. Not it shouldn't surprise me a bit. <laughs> no, no, I watch. Walking Dead religiously and uh, <laughs> all those kind of... I mean, there are some bad zombie shows. and Oh, God, yes. But not so much shows, but movies out there, you know. And, uh, yeah. But uh, I don't anything. A well-made zombie, you know. So I, I like... Hard to beat it, huh? The early stuff, Romero. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't like his later stuff so much. I think he should have stopped earlier. Um, yeah. 28 Days Later, the remake of Dawn of the Dead, Resident Evil... Walking Dead. No, so are, are you a are you a traditional slow lumbering mindless zombie guy, or do you like the new fast moving zombies? Um, well, I think it kind of depends on the movie, the way it's done. I mean, The Walking Dead, you know, they walk, but it's that's like done really well because they're sort of like. You know, it's very claustrophobic, like when they're in the prison or whatever. Mm -hmm. The fact that they're walking really slow kind of makes the menace even more because it's they're build up, you know, they're walking slowly down the corridors, and you know, in, in a couple of minutes they're going to reach the person, they're going to attack or whatever. But yeah. the fact that they're going slowly kind of increases the tension, mm -hmm. you know. But I think when it's in a with the fast moving stuff like uh, like World War Z, I thought we, I thought that was done really well. Yeah. Uh, to sort of be just charged, they're almost like an army of insects, right? right. Sort of racing down the street. You know, I thought that was done really well. So. If it's done well, I don't mind if it's the slow type or the fast type. 
you know, the, the problem is with the zombie um, phenomenon, if you like, is because it's so popular, you have a lot of basically what are just poor films being made. And, you know, they kind of swamp the good stuff. Um, but if you sort of, you know, you've got a good filter, <laughs> yeah. there's plenty of good stuff out there. Well, I, I, uh, I'm more of a fan of the, um, the Walking Dead type zombie, mm. where they're they're not you know s- so slow like in the the first uh, yeah you know incarnation of them, but they're not they're kind of in between you know they're not running around fast. So it's I'm with you. Yeah. I think it builds up the tension. So well, actually, that's a good point because if you look back at some of the really early ones, even like Nights of the Living Dead, which mm-hmm. is a good film, yeah. But I mean that they're like really slow. Yeah, you know, like you, you could literally bounce your way between them and not even get bitten once yeah you can you can walk away from them yeah yeah yeah, in in the walking dead you know they're kind of like somebody has to you know coming out on a friday night or whatever (laughs) (laughs) yeah they've got some they've got movement yeah you're not careful they'll sort of lunge at you you know so uh, but i kind of like some of the comedy ones as well like uh, Shaun of the Dead, Dead. Really yeah. Good. You, you, you and, can't uh, go Zombieland. wrong with that one. Yeah, that was a good one as well. Yeah. And um, Planet Terror, that was a good one. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Tarantino, yeah. yeah. Well, we could spend all, all the rest of the day talking about zombie movies, but we're going to have to cut <laughs> it short here. So um, what about, um, are you you're going to have any, I know you do the, the, the conference thing too. Are, are you got any yeah. uh, appearances coming up that people can maybe go see you? Yeah, actually, I'll be speaking um, in Los Angeles um, on the weekend of the 7th to the 9th of February, uh, the Conscious Life Expo. Uh, that's actually held at a hotel on the airport strip, so to speak, at LAX. Oh, that's next uh, weekend. You Google Conscious Life Expo, uh, okay. LAX, you'll find all the information. I'll be speaking about my book, um, The Pyramids of the Pentagon, which is all about um, what government agencies know about the whole ancient aliens issue and the pyramids and that kind of thing. Um, so I'll be speaking about that on Saturday, uh, the 8th, I think it is, of February. Um, but in March, I'll be speaking at a conference here in Texas. I live in Dallas, and uh, mm-hmm. about an hour away, there's a conference in, in March, which is called the uh, Weird Tex Fest, or the WTF. WTF, <laughs> there you a, go. like a really good name for yeah. it. Yeah. And... Um, That'll be on the weekend of um, the 21st of March to the 23rd of March. And um, then in May, I'll be speaking at a conference in Florida called the Aerial Phenomena Conference. So if you Google Aerial Phenomena Conference plus May uh, plus Florida, you'll find that one. So those are the three upcoming ones I've got in the next couple of months. And I do a lot of sort of local lectures here in the Dallas area as well, like for school kids and, and libraries yeah. and that kind of thing as well. Interesting. I didn't know that you did that. Do, do you do, oh, you... do a series of um, cryptozoology conf- uh, lectures every um, October, November or November and December, depending on their schedules, for the Dallas school district, and I do, do four a year. And, uh, nice. So actually for kids who are all sort of about seven or eight, and um, part of it to sort of get them interested in science. So I talk about the scientific ways we investigate things like Bigfoot and lake yeah. monsters, like using night scope equipment and sonar when you're looking for lake monsters under the water. 
and the DNA analysis, I talk about that. And, but you, you do it in a way where, you know, you keep it fun for the kids. It's actually quite difficult to sort of, <laughs> you know, keep it... You don't want to sort of patronise them. Right. Uh, but equally, you've got to keep it to where it's not too above the heads and where when you're talking to like seven or eight-year-olds, you want to keep it kind of exciting and, you know, give them a few thrills and laughs and jokes and um, and things like that. And it's kind of, you know, they enjoy it and, um, you know, they, they love the, the stories of monsters, but they kind of enjoy, you know, finding out that there are people who go out looking for these things and and why they might exist. So, um, as I said, there are four of those every year. Then I do a lot of... That um, is super cool. ...small groups, um, paranormal groups. And sometimes, where it's a group, they just want a totally, you know, like a book reading group or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'll go along and do a you know, lecture for them or whatever. I think that is super cool that you do that stuff for the school kids, man. Good for you. I, we need more people like you doing stuff like that. Well, it's fun to do. And what the teachers usually do afterwards, they get all the kids to do like a thank you letter and they'll draw like a picture of the Chupacabra or like a yeah. Ness monster. So I've got like a lot of cool pictures where they, you know, they take a lot of time. They use crayons and, you know, there'll be, you'll see like a picture of, Loch Ness and like the mountains surrounding it and then, you know, the blue water and then this long green neck coming out and a glowing red eye or whatever. And that's, know, that's, that's a lot of time doing all these pictures and then mailing them to you. So. That is, that's perfect artwork for some of your book, man. You just put it in there. Yeah. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, I've done some good ones. I mean, you know, that's, that's a lot of intelligent questions as well. And so it's, um, you know, it's sort of entity, it's key to teaching the kids, but in a way that isn't just where they're sort of staring out the window bored. You keep right. them intrigued and excited, you know, which is what you got to do. Well, that's great. I, I, Like I said, good for you. We need more people doing stuff like that for our school well, kids. Thanks. So You're welcome. Everybody, it has been my pleasure to have Mr. Nick Redfern on Parareality Radio this evening. Uh, there's so much more stuff that we could talk about. Maybe I can get you back on the show one day and we can do another two hours. Yeah, just give me a chat. Just you know, just give me like a week's notice, two weeks' oh. notice. I can give you my schedule, whatever. Oh yeah, I'll give you more than a, I'll give you more than two weeks' notice. You you know me, I got to plan this stuff out. <laughs> Everybody, Nick Redfern, he's got a new book coming out in June called "Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind." Uh, should be available sometime the middle of the month of June, and you can see him the weekend of February seventh, eighth, and ninth at the Conscious Life Expo, the Los Angeles airport he'll be at the weird text fest or the wtf in march the 21st to the 23rd and then again in may somewhere in florida for the aerial phenomena conference everybody this is mr nick redfern nick thank you so much for being a guest here on parareality radio i have really enjoyed our conversation time has flown by and i really do want to get you back on again oh sure i'll be be pleased to come back on the show again all right thank you very much man nick redfern Can you believe it? What a great, uh, personable guy he is. Very easy to talk to. Gives a great interview. And I'm definitely going to have Mr. Nick Redfern back on Perialty Radio, hopefully very soon. Once again, thank you, Mr. Redfern, for appearing on my little internet radio show. I really appreciate that. Well, everybody, that about wraps it up for the show. We're going to run just a little bit long tonight. There's not going to be a paranormal report this evening because... I ran long, so um, I'm just going to have to kind of end the show right there. And while I'll do the, I'll bring the paranormal report back on next month's show. Well, 
That's it, everybody. I hope that you enjoyed tonight's show. Let me know what you thought about it by sending me an email, sandman at parareality.com. Also, go visit my website, www.parareality.com. There you can find out all kinds of information about the show. You can uh, listen to the current and past episodes. If you click on the Extras tab, you can join the official Parareality Radio Forum. It is free to join. You can shop in the Parareality Radio Store and even watch some show videos and other stuff. I've got a uh, video on there uh, about uh, Mr. Rick Dyer, who Nick and I were just talking about a a few minutes ago, um, that has proven to be pretty popular. So, uh, yeah, on the on the website, you can find out all kinds of stuff. You can find out about the current show. You click on the uh, Listen to Pair Reality. You can listen to the current show. You can listen to past episodes. You can go to the archives. You can uh, click on the Extras tab, uh, shop in the Pair Reality Radio store, join the forum. It's free to join. Watch some videos, see some awards that I've won. Uh, by the way, uh, if you shop in the Pair Reality Radio Store, I just want to let you know I don't make profit off of that. Every penny that I earn from that goes right back. It goes right back into the show. It's pumped right back into here, making Pair Reality Radio. So please help me support my habit by buying something out of my store. I've got hats, mugs, calendars, shirts galore, pajamas, panties for you ladies. I got all kinds of stuff. Uh, also, don't forget to look me up on Facebook. That is Sandman.Parareality on Facebook. You can listen to the show there as well. You can also find out more about uh, what's going on in the world of Parareality Radio. Everybody, my next show will be available on Monday, March 3rd, 2014 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central U.S. time. So make sure you turn on, tune in, and find out then. Everybody, I hope that this radio program opens your mind up to new ways of thinking, expands your consciousness, and produces a change in the way you see the world. If you wish to change, you must lift the veil of ignorance that has been cast over your eyes. Only then will you see the true power of the universe. I hope that you have a wonderful evening, and I will see you again next month. (laughs) 